Okay, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Hey, God bless America, huh? Uh oh. Yeah, let me drag down a few guitars, knock over. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> That'd be great. Okay, hey, the uh, Global Leadership Conference, I think you. Many of you know that Bill Hybels has spoken at South Valley Community Church, and if you've not heard, um, was it Greg Haugen? What's his first name? Oh, well. He, he's the director of the International Justice Mission, and the guy is, like, amazing to listen to. It'd be worth coming to that conference just to hear him speak. Of course, Andy Stanley and a host of other really great uh, leaders are speaking. It's interesting that on my computer, I got an offer to drop the price, the registration price for me from $209 to 199 They give me 10 bucks off. Okay, if I registered at a certain point, and then I found out you guys can come for 89 bucks. What's that about? It can't be right. <laughs> But it is right. So I hope you'll take advantage of that. Uh, there's a flyer out in the, um, in the lobby that describes it in more detail. It's the largest global leadership conference in the world. It involves about 400,000 people worldwide. So it's really quite an event and I'd like to invite you to it. Okay, we're continuing in our series, The Heart of a Father from 1 John. If you have a Bible, you can turn to 1 John 4. We're going to come cover verses 7 through 21. It's a pretty big passage, 15 verses. The thing that's interesting is that in those 15 verses, the word love appears, what do you think, how many times? Let's have a few guesses. Um, what? A hundred. God bless you, man. <laughs> you just stole my thunder. It's not quite that many. <laughs> All right, any other guesses? <laughs> reduce that by 50. <laughs> We're getting close. Well, reduce it by 75. <laughs> 27 times the word love appears. Isn't that crazy? Now, we talked when I was here five or six weeks ago when I came back from uh, Nigeria, we talked about the three tests of a Christian that appear back and forth over and over in the book of 1 John. You remember, it was the character test to see whether we're in the faith. In other words, Jesus said, by their fruits you will know them, so there should be an impact on our lifestyle, our values, our priorities. We'll see Probably in two weeks in 1 John 5, the Bible says, He that is born of God sinneth not. I remember the first time I read that, I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> I must not be born of God because <laughs> I know I'm still sinning. And whenever I doubt it, all I have to do is talk to my wife, you know what I mean? And I get updates. So when I read that, it was kind of like, wow, what, what does that mean? It literally means he that is born of God does not continue in habitual sin. So the character test is super important in 1 John. Secondly, the second test is the doctrinal test. A lot of people say, I don't believe in doctrine. I don't like doctrine. Keep your doctrine to yourself. It's just funny when people talk like that, you know, that's their doctrine. Everyone has doctrine. Even the doctrine that I don't like your doctrine. I don't agree with your doctrine. I don't believe in biblical doctrine. That is a doctrine. And isn't it amazing uh, there are no absolutes except the absolute insistence that there are no absolutes. The self-defeating nature of those kinds of arguments are absurd. We believe in doctrine. At least we're honest about it. 
and we have a foundation in the authority of Scripture. The key concept throughout 1 John regarding doctrine, and there's a number of things, but it's that Jesus is the Christ, manifest in the flesh. He's God manifest in the flesh. Anyone that denies that, the Bible tells us in 1 John, is an antichrist, all right? So the doctrinal test. But the third test, of course, is the love test. That's the biggest one of all. So here we come to the third major address by John in 1 John regarding the love test. This is a big test. This is the biggest test, in my opinion. Of the three tests, this is the most telling of all, in my personal opinion. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment of all? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Paul said three things will abide throughout all eternity, faith, hope, and love, and what? The greatest of these is love. So this test is the most challenging of all and kind of blew my mind to, uh, to reflect on this all week. So I've called my message. I've got to remember the clicker. <laughs> Let's see if I can do this. I've called my message, Love Made Visible. Let me read the passage, and I'll try not to interrupt myself. And this is sort of like, and then I interrupt myself before I begin reading the passage, but at least I didn't do it in the middle, all right? This is kind of like a devotional message because we're going to close with communion. And this whole section just speaks to us about what communion's really all about. It's absolutely profound. So John tells us, verse 17, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one who has ever seen God, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That means it finds its fulfillment. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us his spirit and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love his brother and sisters whom they can see cannot love God whom they cannot see. And he has given us this commandment. Anyone who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Okay, now, that in itself is just a powerful passage to read. But I want to try to uh, look at a couple of things about why I think this is the most important of the three tests in 1 John. Of course, we're told by Jesus, this is how everyone will recognize that you are my disciples 
when they see the love you have for each other. This is why this test is so profound. This is why how we love one another in the atmosphere in, in a local church should convey the message that this is the safest place on earth for people to come. They won't be judged, condemned, thrown under the bus. Um, there's going to be love, genuine, self-sacrificial love. We learn to love by watching the unconditional love of God working in our lives, and then we simply pass that on to other people. So this entire passage is built around the command that we are to love one another as God has loved us. John actually indicates that we cannot really love others until we ourselves have experienced the love of God. So John goes to great lengths today in the passage to assure us about the fact that God loves us. Remember Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. And when we don't love ourselves, when we don't experience the love of God really for us, see, once we become Christians, people don't realize this, but once we become Christians, when God sees us, he loves us just the way he loves his own son. That's a profound thought, actually, and we'll try to meditate a little bit on that. In today's message, I've broken it down into three simple points. There they are. How can I know that God loves me? How can that love change my life? And how can I personally experience the love of God? So here we go. Point one, how can I know that God loves me? First John tells us there are three ways we know this. The first one is God's love is evident it's seen throughout the world and throughout the scriptures in the revelation of nature and the Bible that God is, you know, his very essence and nature is love. Behold, let us love one another, for love is what? See, I didn't think you guys were engaging, so let's try that one more time. Okay, uh, okay, beloved, let us love one another, for love is what? From God, all right? And whoever loves has been what? and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God God is love. All right, that's a pretty profound statement right there for sure. God is love is one of the most significant, meaningful, should be heart-gripping revelations in all the Bible. Paul actually prays, and we'll look at this prayer when we close in Ephesians 3. He prays that we might be able to grasp or comprehend the unsearchable love of God in Christ. So this is something I think we can take for granted and we can miss. John Stott said, this is the most comprehensive and sublime of all the biblical affirmations regarding God's being. It means that at the root of all that God is and all that God does is love itself. <clears throat> so no matter how difficult it may be for us to see this at times, the Bible tells us that God God's love is the fountain from which all of his actions flow. In saying that God is love, John is not simply identifying a quality which God possesses. Instead, he is making a statement about the essence of God's very nature and God's very being. It's not merely that God loves us. It's that God himself is love. It's not merely that loving people is one of God's activity, but that all of his activities are, moted by, are, are motivated by the fact that he loves. He loves. That's what he does. That's who he is. That's his primary identity. 
And here's what the psalmist said, all the Lord's ways are loving and true. That's who God really is. And yet we're, we're taught and people make caricatures and we, we sometimes hear it preached in churches and we don't get this. Therefore, to imagine, here's the point, to imagine that God does not love us is to deny his very nature and to misrepresent his character. I've always loved this verse. It's a little hard to read, sorry, but I kind of like the graphic. One thing, the psalmist said, one thing has God spoken. Two things have I heard, that you, O God, are strong, and that you, O Lord, are loving. I always thought that's a tremendous passage that balances the truths here out. God isn't just strong and powerful. He is also loving in the way he expresses that power and that might. That's the motivation behind the manifestation of his power. So point one, how can I know that God loves me? First, because it's his nature. It's in his nature to love you. We think it's in his nature to judge us, to condemn us, to, to, uh, to express express wrath on us, to send us to hell. But no, I'm telling you, the number one characteristic of God that motivates him to do everything he does is love. Secondly, God's love, here's a second way we can know that God loves us. God's love is evident in the cross of Christ. And that's why we're going to celebrate the Lord's table in a few moments and recall, bring to remembrance. Jesus said, do this, what? In remembrance of me because this is the central message of Christianity, the cross of Christ. Now, here's what it says. It says, this is how God what? Thank you for participating. I appreciate that. Uh, that's good. You're, get, you're warming up a little bit. Second service is way more enthusiastic than this one. So, ah, I just try to labor through this one, you know. Looking forward to an excited audience. <laughs> I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Okay, this is how God showed his love among us. He did what? Sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. And what? Sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. All right? The second reason we know God loves us is because of the gift that God gives us in his son, Jesus Christ, all right? John 3, 16, everyone knows that verse. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And actually in the Greek, that means his only one-of-a-kind one son, okay? There's only one, and that's what John says there. It says he sent his one and only son into the world. The idea here is that God only has one son who is especially precious to him, and yet because of his love for us, he sent that one-of-a-kind one son into a hostile, fallen, dark world to redeem and rescue us. Why did he do that? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So the Bible tells us this is a clear demonstration of real, authentic love. And I like this. In this act, I like this translation. In this action, we see what real love is. It's not just talk. It's not just words, but it's deed. In this act, we see what real love is. It is not our love for God, but his love for us when he sent his son to satisfy God's anger against our sin. So here we see God's love, 
not only in who he is, but we see a, a tangible expression of it in the love of Christ for us. And that's why we're told in Romans 5, 8 that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still what? <laughs> when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And when the Bible says you're dead in your trespasses and sin, sins, guess what? It means you're dead. <laughs> dead people don't respond to God, all right? So God has to take the initiative. It's not like I met him halfway, you know, because I was seeking him. No, I was an enemy of God by my disposition, by my nature, and by my decisions and actions. No questions. And yet Jesus died for me before I even knew about him, all right? That's good news. This is how God showed us that he loves us. He takes the initiative. Notice this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't simply meet me halfway because I'm seeking him. No, he takes all the initiate, he initiates everything entirely. That's why Jesus said in John 15, 16, you have not chosen me, but you remember it, but I have chosen you. All right. God is the author of all this good stuff. So John tells us that God sent his one and unique son to, to die as an atoning sacrifice. Now, this is kind of a, a, a it's the word propitiation uh, in some translation, and it simply means turning away God's anger and wrath because of our sins by satisfying the just and holy demands of his holy law, thus allowing God to freely forgive those who come to Christ. Now, God has loved us before the beginning of time. The Bible actually tells us that Christ died for us before eternity, I mean in eternity, before time ever began. So God's eternal love was simply ignited and released through Christ's atonement for us. And when he died for us, this is a judicial term, it means God said not to all of us who accept him, not guilty, not guilty. That is what is called good news. Now here's how it works. Paul breaks it down for us in Romans 3. He said, since since we've compiled this long and sorry record as sinners and proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us, what happened? Whoa, God did it for us. That's good news. <laughs> I, I remember feeling a lot of guilt, a lot of shame, a lot of self-rejection, a lot of not good enoughness. I like that term. Not good enoughness. I wrote that into my computer. It spell checked it. It doesn't exist. <laughs> but it exists for me. Believe me. Not good enoughness. Out of sheer generosity, he put us in right standing with himself. And what, is, what does Paul call it here? It's a pure gift. So the Bible says we're, not, we're saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He got, of, got us out of this mess, the mess we're in, and restored us to where he always wanted us to be. He did this by means of Jesus Christ. God sacrificed Jesus on the altar of the world to clear that world of sin, having faith in him, sets us in the clear. So the cross of Christ provides dramatic evidence of God's love. All right, so here we're talking about the idea of God's love. How do we know that he loves us? First, because it's his nature to do it. Second, God's love is demonstrated on the cross. And third, God's love is evident through other Christians. Now, this is a huge challenge. It's a huge challenge for all of us. 
It's a huge challenge for the Christian church. John said, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. That means it reaches its goal. It, it, it achieves its ultimate purpose in us when we love one another. The love of Christians that they have for one another is another way that God mediates his love for us. And yet oftentimes we find that Christians aren't necessarily the most loving people on the planet when they should be, when we should be. That's a big challenge. I think we all recognize that. Here's the point. God's love is not only to be seen in past history through the cross of Christ, but also in the continuation of that love being expressed through you. All right? How you doing? How you doing on this? And I'm not talking about just enjoying my speaking. <laughs> I'm talking about this point. <laughs> How are you doing on this point? I hope you're working on it. I hope it's, uh, Paul said in uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 1, make love your greatest aim. I hope that's true for you. So, here it is, the love of Christians that provides us with a visible manifestation of the invisible God. Christ's physical presence is no longer with us in the world, but if people want to see Jesus, they should be able to meet him at this church. They should be able to experience him through your love and your concern. This is the ultimate apologetic. You know, we're having an apologetics conference in, what, three weeks? Again, rock em, sock em, people coming great teachers, and our church has always prided itself on our apologetics conference. I think this year is the 21st year of having it. We did it before there was a department of apologetics at Biola University. We've done it for decades, uh, and it means people hear the word uh, biblical apologetics, and they think that we're going to apologize for our faith. <laughs> Come to our conference, and we'll apologize for our faith. No, the Greek word means to make a defense to give answers, all right? To prove something is real even though it's invisible. The ultimate apologetic isn't a conference. It's the love of God being expressed through human beings. And I'm telling you, I'm, I was overwhelmed all week by this because I just don't think I'm doing a good enough job. But I want to do better. I want it to be in the forefront of my thinking. Not just doctrine, not just character, but love for people. Real love, acceptance, unconditional acceptance. Jesus tended to just accept people where they were. He related to them where he could. With fishermen, he talked about fishing. With farmers, he talked about sowing seeds. With the woman at the well, he talked about living water. I mean, he just connected with people. He did things that people weren't supposed to do in his time because he cared more about people than simply keeping all the religious rules that had been created at that time. So the third evidence of God's love is the love that we find through other Christians. So point one, how can we know that God loves me? That's how. Point two, this is point two. How can that love change my life? Three, again, three ways. First, it should give us confidence, give us confidence in our relationship with God. All right? And here's what 
John says, 1 John 4, 16 and 17, so we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us. Again, it's brought to fulfill its purpose so that we may have what? Confidence for the day of judgment. In other words, for a Christian who has this kind of love within themselves, they don't fear the coming judgment of God, which is honestly, irreversibly, on its way into the world at some point in the future. All right? We would, but we look forward to it. We have confidence. Because as he is, so are we in this world. All right, just a couple of quick points. First, I like the phrase. I've always liked the phrase. It's always meant a lot to me personally. It says, we know and believe in the love that God has for us. Now, I grew up in a family where there wasn't a lot of love. There's a lot of anger, rage, all kinds of goofy stuff. My father was an alcoholic, so, you know, when I became a Christian, I kind of transferred that father image over, you know, to God. God, God is perpetually angry with me. <laughs> I don't blame him. You know I mean, that's kind of the feeling I wrestled with all the time. So the first thing I needed to do is know empirically. You follow me? In other words, I needed data, evidence, proof, so that I would at least know, know that God loves me. And then I begin to take the knowing into my heart, and I began to believe it, all right? We are to know and believe, rely on, trust in, have confidence in the love that God has for us. It's hard to do that if you don't even know about it. So we got to know first, then we've got to recite it, affirm it, claim it. And I'm going to show you kind of how to do that in a minute. Secondly, as unpopular as it might sound, the Bible is replete with warning after warning that divine judgment is coming. Actually, that's why Jesus came to planet Earth. He came to rescue us from the wrath that is coming, from the certainty of eternal death and judgment. So why is the concept of God's judgment so unpopular today? It's simply because people don't want to be accountable for their actions. It's actually pretty much that simple. Um, Jesus said in John 3, 19, this is the verdict. In other words, the verdict's in. We're waiting for the verdict. Okay? The jury comes back. The verdict is rendered. Jesus said this is the verdict, that light has come into darkness, that men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. A lot of the reasons people give for not wanting to believe in God is simply because they don't want to be accountable. They don't want to have to live up to anyone else's standards. So they choose to go ahead and sing with Frank Sinatra. I did it my way. I've always said, uh, you know, in my mind, Frank, you should be ashamed of yourself. You did it your way. And look at the destruction and debris along the highway of life you left in your wake. What a mess. You shouldn't be proud of doing it your way. You should be ashamed of yourself. That, was, that came out of nowhere. Okay. <laughs> okay, and finally, number three, even though true Christians know in their heads that Christ has died for their sins, it's still possible for them to actually view the judgment of God with fear. You know, like, uh-oh, wow, that's scary. Unfortunately, some groups within Christianity actually promote and encourage such fear. 
often to manipulate and control their members. But here John tells us that this fear is absolutely irrational if you're a born-again Christian. And that the key to defeating this fear is to have a clear understanding of your standing before Christ when God justifies you by faith alone. All right? So I hope you can get your head around the magnitude of the last statement in this passage. And there it is. In this world, we are like him. Now, what that means is that once Christ comes into our lives and we are in Christ, when God looks at us in this world, we look just like Jesus. That's the translation I read earlier, okay? Because, Christ, because of Christ, God now loves you just as he loves his own son. And that means when God looks at you in this world, he doesn't see your sins. Instead, he sees the righteousness of his own son covering you. You still know you're not perfect. Everyone around you knows you're not perfect. The Bible says that if we say we have no sin, we're lying and the truth is not in us. So it's not that I'm a perfect person suddenly. And isn't it funny? Some of the Christians that bug me the most are the ones that act like that. You know what I mean? Like they got it figured out. They've arrived. They're holier than me. Oh, they're so pious. <laughs> they drive me nuts, actually. They drive me crazy. All right, how can we know this is true? A couple of quick verses. Paul said, for our sake, he made him to be sin. Who knew no sin? That's Jesus. So that in him, we might become what? The righteousness of God. I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. Although here's another verse, 1 Corinthians 1.30. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. And here's the real, this is one of my favorite all-time verses. I'm serious. I got it about 500 of them, but this is one of them right here. For it's, in Hebrews, it says, for by one sacrifice, he has done what? That's describing what's happened to every believer that's received Jesus. Through that one sacrifice, he, God, in his supernatural power, has made us perfect forever. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Get it? All right? So in Christ, I'm perfect. As Eric Smith, I'm still being made holy. It's a process. But don't confuse the two. That's not the gospel. People think the gospel is I got to be made holy. I got to be made holy. I got to be made holy. Oh my gosh, I got to run the treadmill. I got to keep all the rules. I got to be just perfect before God. That's not the gospel. That's antichrist. That's self-righteousness. That's re religiosity. That is not the gospel at all. The gospel is first and foremost God making me perfect through Christ. Then because of that and because of my changed nature and the power of the Holy Spirit, I, I move closer and closer to Christ's likeness over time. One's called justification. The other is called sanctification. Martin Luther actually summarized the great truth of the doctrine of justification with this Latin phrase. Every Christian should know this Latin phrase. <laughs> uh, isn't Latin cool? Latin just makes you sound smart when you say it. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Or feel dumb in your case. Thank you. I'm glad you clarified that. That's Steve right there. <laughs> Help him after church if you can. I've tried. Okay. <laughs> 
Simul Eustace et Peccator. I'm serious. This was one of his greatest statements that he made. Of course, he was a Greek scholar, a Hebrew scholar, a German-speaking scholar. He was a Latin scholar. Everybody thinks he was just kind of a wild man. No, he's one of the most brilliant men of his time. I saw a list of 100 most significant, influential people in the history of the world. Martin Luther was number 16. That's pretty substantial, my friends. And this is one of the great statements that he made. Who knows what this says? Let's take the first word, simul. Similar's a good guess. What? Simultaneously. We have one Latin scholar in our midst. Wow. Simultaneously. What does eustace mean? It sounds like our English word justice, and it literally means righteousness. All right? Et is what I'm going to do after service at the restaurant. <laughs> okay, that was super stupid. <laughs> I don't know where that came from. Et means an, and who knows what peccator means? What? Sinner. Yes, indeed. So what Martin Luther described in justification was just brilliant with four Latin words, and that is as a Christian, I am simultaneously righteous and sinner. How's that possible? Well, it's because I still live in the flesh. Everybody's repeat after me. Simul justus et peccator. You ready? Simul justus et peccator. One more time. Simul justus et peccator. It describes you if you're a Christian. You're not perfect in and of yourself, but before God, you are righteous. All right. How can I know that God, how can I let the love of God change me? First, it gives us confidence in our relationship with God. And second, second, it should give you victory over fear. Now notice this verse. There is what? No fear in love. In other words, fear and love are mutually exclusive. All right? Aristotle said, no one can love the man whom he fears. That doesn't mean we don't respect God. But in the Bible, when it says we're to fear the Lord, it means that we're to yield to him his due and proper place in our lives out of holy reverence and respect. It doesn't mean that I'm like, oh my gosh, scared to death. That's not what it means. Instead, it says perfect love does what? Drives out fear. Some translations says it casts it out. Just like when Jesus met demon-possessed people, what would he do? <laughs> he drove out the demons because he had more power than they did. When you're in, uh, when you're in Nigeria, when you're in sub-Saharan Africa in general, the cultural paradigm is called power-fear. Like in Asia, it's honor-shame. In America, it's innocence Guilt. Those are the three main cultural worldviews throughout the globe, those three. But in Nigeria, it's power, fear, because it's an animistic culture. They attribute, you know, this thing, this has a spirit in it, and that has a spirit, and rocks and trees and animals all have spirits. And whoever has the most power doesn't have to be afraid. Otherwise, everyone should be afraid. And they are. They're filled with fear. 
Several times I had people come up to me and say, would you break this curse that somebody put on me? So they wear talismans and they wear amulets and they go to uh, shamans and they ask them to counter curse the curse. I told this one guy, I said, man, I can't break the curse because it's already been broken. The next time somebody tries to curse you, say, hey, that's not possible. You're too late. <laughs> I can't be cursed. The Bible says a curse given without reason is like a sparrow that flutters about but can never land. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ became a what? A curse for us. So this idea of casting out fear, you know, we talk about spiritual weapons of our warfare. It says in 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5, it says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So often we talk about these spiritual weapons, but we fail frequently to talk about one of the most powerful of all, and that is love, the love of God. The love of God has the power, just like casting out demons to cast out the fear that debilitates us, that threatens us, that floating uncertainty and anxiety about the future. The true, pure love of God will drive that from our lives. That's important to me. Unfortunately, many Christians, according to this verse, actually live with some type of fear of punishment, even though they've been justified. You know, even though there's, they've experienced simul use to set packator, all right? Not surprisingly, this sense of fear leads to withdrawal, isolation, aloneness, and hiding from God. This reaction is true from the dawn of time. Remember when Adam sinned? We, we never heard the word fear before, but in chapter 3 of Genesis, we read that the Lord God came walking and called to the man and said, where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and what happened? Man, I was scared to death. <laughs> I was afraid because of what? I felt a sense of shame and nakedness, exposure. And so I did what? I hid. <laughs> afraid of God, filled with a sense of shame, hiding. Only the, only the perfect love of God can heal us from that sense of self. It alone can heal us from the fear of rejection, insecurity, unworthiness, self-hate, not good enoughness, and despair. Here's what we're told. Paul said, you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear when you became a Christian. No, instead you received the spirit of what? Sonship, so that you can refer to God as your father. I was in Israel, in Jerusalem. I had dinner with some friends of mine that are archaeologists and teachers at the Hebrew University there. And I came to the house where they lived, and the man was still gone teaching or doing whatever he does. And I'm sitting there with Claire Fawn, and we're talking, and there's their three-year-old son's booking around, running around. And Steve comes home. The minute he opens the door, the three-year-old starts to shout, Abba, Abba, Abba. And he runs across the entire living room, grabs his daddy by the leg. I thought, that's pretty cool. I never, I'll never forget that moment. That's what this is talking about. He's your heavenly father. What do you think? Jesus said, man, if earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to you, including the Holy Spirit? 
All right. How can that love change my life? Three ways. It should give you confidence in your relationship with God. It should give you victory over fear. And it should help you develop growing and healthy relationships with other Christians. You'll notice all through 1 John, all of these things aren't happening in isolation from other people. If you didn't notice that, look at this. We love, why? We learn how to love others by following the one who loved us unconditionally to begin with. All right? That's what Christianity is all about. And the Bible says the fear of man is a snare. But whoso trusteth in the Lord, happy is he. Okay, got to end. Sort of. <laughs> kind of. Heading in that direction. I read a story about a minister who says, in closing, he went on for 45 more minutes. That's my kind of preacher, man. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Sort of. Point three, how can I personally experience the love of God? I want to look just as we close to what I call a conceptual cross-reference. That's what it's called. Same subject, different book, all right? Here's what Paul prays about. And this is just feel the intensity here. You ready? It's a little wordy, but you can track it, okay? Everybody's paying attention. Anybody sleeping nearby you? In, in Nigeria, no joke, a lady walks around. This is during the pastor's conference. I'm not talking about children's church here. She walks around with this long, long stick. If you see somebody has fallen asleep, whack, whack. I'm not kidding. I'm serious. I loved it. <laughs> Bring him back to me. Whack that guy. <laughs> Actually, I used to teach uh, in a Bible college at night. And students worked all day and came, sat in the front row and started sleeping. I was just he probably needs that more than my message. <laughs> it's okay. Go ahead, lay before the Lord. That's good. Yeah, I know how that feels. Here he goes, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father. This is a prayer. Get it? You know what I mean? He's saying, this is how I earnestly pray to God from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your innermost being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in what? Love. This is what this prayer is all about. May have the strength to do what? Comprehend. The word is grasp in the King James. It actually kind of means to tackle something, wrestle it, till you get it, till you understand it. You have the strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is four things here we close with? Breadth, length, height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That's why you have to pray about this. It surpasses knowledge. You're not, it's not going to just slip into your head because you sleep with your Bible under your pillow. You know what I mean? You've got to pray about this. You've got to ask God. You've got to work at comprehending this surpassing knowledge. And in the end, the goal is to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's what love has the power to do the love of God. It casts out fear. It's the greatest of all spiritual weapons, in my opinion. So, as we close here, it's important for you to understand that you grow spiritually to the degree that you are able to comprehend the deeper, the deeper meaning of Christ's love. So what does it mean? What does it mean to comprehend these four things? Real quickly, breadth, the breadth 
of God's love tells us that Christ's love is without measure, range, scope, and that it includes everybody. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that class, you know this verse. If you don't know this verse, I want you to get up and leave the sanctuary immediately, all right? <laughs> nah, took me a while to memorize that one. Okay, breath tells us that, that Christ's love includes everybody. That's what it means, the breadth of it. Ooh, it's so, so broad. Revelations tells us in heaven there's a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, from every people, every nation, every language standing before the throne of the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's why we go to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why we do missions here at South Valley. The breadth, the link tells us that there's no stopping point where God's love comes to an end. Now let me tell you what I believe here real quickly because I just am out of time, but this is something that is important to me. This means that there's no point where the love of God gets exhausted and won't tolerate us anymore. <laughs> Actually, Hebrews says that our life is to be freed from the love of money, content with what we have, for he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. All right? That's what we're talking about here. And what this is called in theology is actually, this doctrine is called the perseverance of the saints. That's what it's called. And what it means is that once you become a Christian, you will never lose your salvation. I believe this. I affirm it. It's biblical. I know people argue other sides of it, but there's a, such a weight of evidence in favor of it that I choose to understand this. I don't believe that God would choose us, birth us into eternal life, and then somehow lose us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will what? never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand and if you don't think that's significant enough my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands I think that's pretty clear any part of that you didn't get all right gotta go many of us have played catch me if you can <laughs> I just want to let you know today he will catch you some of you have played this, but he did catch you, and that's why you're here today. You tried to run away. You tried to do this. You tried to find fulfillment there and this and that and everything else, and yet God says, my God's love holding on to you is greater than your stamina to try to get away. David described, this way, described it this way. Where can we run? Where can we go? No matter where I go, David said, God's there. I can go here, there, everywhere. I can hide up here, down there, over there. God's there, God's there, God's there, God's there. He's inescapable because he loves us. Here's what we're told. If we give up on him, what? He doesn't give up on us. Okay. Height tells us that Christ's love is infinite and eternal and is so vast that it is beyond finding out. The Bible tells us you, your love, O Lord, reaches to the heavens, your faithfulness to the skies, as high as the heavens are above the earth. So great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Last but not least, and I'll ask the worship team to come, depth tells us that Jesus not only descended from heaven to earth, it's called the incarnation, which is pretty outrageous, right? 
probably would have been wondrous for him to just come and tell us about God and explain spiritual things or give us teachings. But he came to do more than that. He came to earth, but he also went from earth to hell in order to redeem us, all right? That's what the Bible clearly teaches us. Don't have time for that verse, but it simply says that Jesus, even though he had eternal glory with the Father, emptied himself and became like a servant, came to earth, and then did the ultimate thing. He went to Calvary to pay the price, to die for our sins. That's how far-reaching God's love is. That's the depth that comes from heaven to hell in order to save each and every one of us, all right? That's why in chapter 3, in, a, in an expression of explosive you know, excitement, John goes, behold what manner of love the Father has, what? Bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Bestowed. What do you do when you bestow something? <laughs> it's given. It's given as a gift. It's that simple. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, the Bible says when Jesus came to the Jewish people, to his own people, it says his own received him not. But then in John 1.12, it says, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. He just has the right to bestow eternal life, to bestow righteousness, to bestow forgiveness. Remember Jesus walked around going, my son, your sins are forgiven, and everybody freak out. How can he possibly say that? Well, it's because he's God manifest in the flesh. He has the power to do that. Okay, we're going to have communion in just a moment after the song. Has it been distributed already? So that means they're on time and I'm not? Is that what that means? Okay, brother, bless us.